This is the Say the Damn Score podcast. With your host, Logan Anderson. to the Save the Damn Score podcast. I'm Logan Anderson, and today, in honor of Halloween being on this coming Monday, we're going to break format a little bit today, and I'm going to take you into the little broadcast booth of horrors. In this episode, I will replay the best broadcast horror stories from past podcasts and mix in stories from my own experience. Before we get started, I want to remind everyone to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher, and you can sign up for email updates on the top right part of the page on saythedamnscore.com. Also, follow me on Twitter at Radio underscore Logan and on Facebook at facebook.com slash saythedamnscore. Also, if you do listen on iTunes, I'd sure appreciate it if you would take just a few seconds to rate the podcast. Now, without further ado, get ready to turn on the mic in the little broadcast booth of horrors. We'll start off with Are You Afraid of the Dark? The story of the power mysteriously going out during Super Bowl 47, told by Howard Deneroff, the executive producer of Westwood One. So, and, and so this is Super Bowl 47, so, and I've worked on, in some capacity as a producer, every Super Bowl since Super Bowl 24. I've been very fortunate. And, and, you know, it started out as being a production assistant. Then it started out, then became the pregame and halftime and postgame producer. And then it became, I mentioned to you, we hit Spanish and English. Then I became the producer. Then I became the coordinator producer. Now I'm the executive producer. So I, I've had a hand in every Super Bowl since Super Bowl 24, which is incredible. But nothing like this. And so, you know, the game's going along. We come out at the start of the second half, and Jacoby Jones runs back the kickoff return for a touchdown. And here's one of those moments as a producer. I made sure my talent knew immediately it's the longest play in Super Bowl history. Not just the longest kickoff return, it's the longest play in Super Bowl history. So we do that. We go to a commercial break. We come out of the commercial break. Um, actually, I'm sorry, there was no commercial break because it was the opening kickoff of the second half. I apologize. So we're just filling, and then comes the, the neck, the, the, the kickoff back to San Francisco. And all of a sudden, I don't hear anything in my ears. Everything goes dark in my ears. And I've had that happen before. I pull the, the, the plug out of, you know, I pull the, the headphone jack out of the thing. So I'm looking, and that's my first thought. And then I see everything on my console is black. So I'm like, uh-oh. And then my talent, which is Kevin Harlan and, and uh, Boomer Sison, which are right next to me, Kevin next to me starts banging his headphones like he's lost everything. He's putting his head, banging and banging and hitting me with his elbow. And, I'm, and I realize that he's not hearing it. And then I see everything in the front row where we are. It's completely out. So now I'm like, oh, crap. So I now look behind us, which is where all our racks of equipment are. And keep in mind, for the Super Bowl, we have a huge setup, so much huger than anything in radio, and, and normal, normal radio broadcast, and racks of equipment. In, and it's normally lights, green lights, and red lights, and yellow lights, and, and everything. And it's completely dark. And my engineers, normally for a football broadcast on radio, there's one engineer. I have four engineers for the Super Bowl now. And they are scurrying around like mice in a maze. And now I'm like, oh, shit. And so 
I still don't realize it's the whole thing. I, I'm, you know, whatever. Because remember, the, when there was the blackout in the stadium, you have to remember, not all the lights went out in the stadium. Only about three-quarters of the lights went out. So it wasn't completely pitch black where all of a sudden you realized, wait, what just happened? And so now I look out in front of the press box, in front of the booth, broadcast booth, and I look down towards the press box, and I look down to the field, and I see that nothing is on. And now I'm like, oh, I won't say the rest. And all of this, by the way, this whole process of uh-oh to oh-crap to oh-shit to OF was about 10 seconds. All that in 10 seconds. I mean, it's in, it, it feels like an eternity, but it was 10 seconds. I then realized, okay, we got a problem. But I know what we have to do. I actually, my, I still told you, I started in 1989. My first World Series, there was an earthquake. I was brand new. I didn't know what to do. I watched as people did it. Now, technology has changed a lot in the 25 years in between. However, what we did in 1989 during the earthquake when we lost all power is the same thing we did this time. Is a regular old standard phone line works. It doesn't, it's not, as long as you don't use a portable phone that's plugged in, if it's just a regular old, old-time phone, it works. That doesn't work on power. It goes through the landline. So we have a phone in an emergency to get us on the air. So all I did was I picked up the phone, I called the studio, and the studio, by the way, the same time I'm doing those 10 seconds of, uh-oh, oh, crap, they're doing the same thing because they went to our backup feed, there's nothing there. They went to our backup backup feed, there's nothing there. They went to the third, we have three backups, nothing's there. They look on TV, see nothing's there. They realize they got a major problem, so their instructions are to hit a commercial break. So I call in, so we have 26 seconds of silence on the air, which is way too long, but it is what it is. It's a lot less than everybody else. He hits a commercial. Two minutes later, we were out of that commercial on the phone reporting live for the next 34 minutes, passing a phone around and getting people on and talking about what the situation was. And at that point, anytime there's something unusual like that, your job is not a, is a, not a sportscaster. Your job is a news reporter. We have to tell people that, okay, the blackout is in the dome. It is isolated. There's not, the whole city is not out. It is not a terrorist act. It is not, you know, once we were getting information, we didn't know. So we don't want people to panic. And keep in mind, there were also people listening on the radio in the stadium who had no idea what was going on. The PA announcer didn't work because uh, there's no power. So, but if you had a little portable radio, which they gave out to all the fans in the stands, okay, as, as a gift in the little seat cushions, they're listening to us. So we're reporting, okay, you know, this is what's going on, this is what's happening, there's nothing, you know, the lights are on outside on Bourbon Street, this is isolated, they're working on it, the backup generator, all the things we could tell them, which wasn't a lot initially, but you become a news reporter. And I learned all that during the 89 earthquake when you're talking about all these other things. So um, it was probably the longest 34 minutes of my career, um, but I will say this, or 36 minutes I think it was, 34 minutes we were on the air, 36-minute delay, um, because of the two minutes of commercials. I, you know, we handled it about as good. I'm as, pr- I'm a, as proud of those 36 minutes as I am of everything we've ever done, simply because everybody came together and, and you know, reacted and did what we could. Um, TV had, you know, TV is documented how they handled it. A lot of more people saw TV than listen to us, uh, although we had a big audience that day. Um, and the 49ers and the Ravens radios were affected much more than we are because simply, you know, they're, they're not, they didn't have somebody who lived through this once before 25 years ago and know how to handle it. 
and that's just my good fortune, I guess you would say. <laughs> In my first year covering Presentation College just about five years ago, we went to what was called UMAC Dome Days. It was the conference's special day where every team got to match up against a conference team in the Metrodome, which was at that time where the Minnesota Vikings played. I had brought backup equipment to literally every game that I had been at for several years, but we had a busy broadcast schedule and I was going to be gone overnight, so somebody else needed the cell phone equipment for a high school game back at the studio and i said that would be fine and that i would just take what we had it was going to a professional stadium where paul allen calls games like i said for the minnesota vikings well of course you don't bring the backup equipment and something goes horribly wrong at that time our station had not invested in a 1-800 number so we had to rely on our board op calling the phone line and then we answer it from our jk sport mix the metrodome was wired through a switchboard that nobody knew how to run so they would try to call us on the number provided but no one could hit the button on the switchboard to accept the call so we were not able to get through we could not call out because we didn't have the long distance code so we had to broadcast holding a cell phone to our ears and passing it back and forth in a professional stadium where probably the next day paul allen used a much fancier equipment probably didn't even use the phone line with about 99.9 percent .9 certainty and probably had a wonderful broadcast but of course for us it went all wrong and now back to the next story in our little broadcast booth of horrors. The story of a mysterious creature causing terror on a minor league bus ride told by the program director at WBAL in Baltimore, Scott Masteller. So um, I remember one trip I was on a bus and um, it was interesting when I was in Wichita, we actually flew to the Texas teams because they were so far away. That was El Paso, Midland, Texas, and San Antonio. But... We did take the bus to the Eastern Eastern Division team. So we were on a long bus ride. I think we were going to Jacksonville, Mississippi. And when we were taking this trip, it was right before the All-Star break, and the managers of the Wichita team got the honor to host the All-Star game wherever it was. So, you know, the baseball team left Wichita for the first game after the All-Star break, but the managers weren't on the bus. So as the radio guy, I'm sitting in, like, row three or four, and back then you, you had a Walkman. You didn't have an iPhone. And I'm listening to my music, and it's like 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning. And I wake up, and I notice there's this, this creature crawling down my chest. And it's a, it's a ferret. Here there was a pitcher by the name of Mike Linsky, who had been at one point in the Orioles organization. He had a pet ferret that he brought with him on the bus. <laughs> and they decided to put it you know, on me to try to spook me. I was so upset that they did this, I didn't get spooked. I was mad. I picked the ferret up, I walked to the back of the bus, and I gave it to Mr. Linsky, and I said, this is yours, and I wish you would keep it away from everybody. I'm trying to get some rest. And the players just erupted in laughter because I stood up to them. And so that, that, was, that was a pretty good one. Um, you know, and then it, it's just doing games in different locations. I remember um, Midland, Texas was a place where it was so warm during the summer. I, I remember my last game, I think the game time temperature was 118 degrees, and the wind was blown out of the west at like 30 miles an hour. So it was like walking into a blast furnace. But it was a ballpark where 
it's now now they have a new park, but it was an old ballpark, and the owner tried to save money by turning the lights off as soon as the game was over. Like within five minutes, people get out of the stands and go. And we had an open air press box with fluorescent lighting. So if you turn off all the lights in the ballpark on a hot summer night, 85, 90 degrees, what do you think is going to happen if you have an open air press box, you know, with fluorescent lights? <laughs> Every bug in Texas is going to come into your booth <laughs> and say hello. And that, that reminds me of my first time I got to call baseball, which was back in the Eastern League in AA, and we were in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I was, I was kind of like the color guy, the guy you saw in the movie Major League that really <laughs> didn't say anything. That was kind of me, you know, and I was sitting there with a longtime legend in Williamsport, PA, who had called the games, and I was just there to add a little color and texture. Well, it was a hot summer night, and the windows were open, and all of a sudden, at one point, the, the gentleman that's calling the game, he swallows a fly live on the air. <laughs> and so his voice is gone, and he's like tapping me on the shoulder, like, oh, go ahead, kid, it's your chance. And that was how I got to call my first game. So <laughs> you got to be in the right place at the right time, you know? Just last season, covering high school basketball playoffs, we had gone to a neutral site game for a district championship to go to state. Two high school teams, both number one seeds in their region, had come in to meet and played, as I said, to go to state. Well, both teams came with their white jerseys. And you can't play a game if both teams have white jerseys. There was miscommunication. They both thought they were going to be the home team. The solution was that one of the teams, and actually the team with the better record for whatever reason, had to wear the road uniforms of the host school. So it was Warner High School, and they were wearing Millbank, South Dakota uniforms. Well, that threw all of my name memorization for a loop. None of the numbers on the roster were accurate, and we had to quickly scramble, run and find the athletic director and figure out the numbers and just say them as we went so it was an interesting night it's the only time i've ever seen a team qualify for the state tournament wearing one of their rivals uniforms now going back to the next in our series of chilling tales it's the night of the digital walking dead Dan Lucero of WIBW in Topeka, Kansas, talks about being overrun by the Twitter undead. I don't know about that. Let me let me tell you what really happened there. Uh, the uh, you know if you're if you're the guy behind the haterade cooler, sometimes you're going to hate on the wrong person. <laughs> and I don't know if I hated on the wrong person or what, but I remember one day uh, I was I was at a Rockies game actually. I was at a Colorado Rockies game with some friends of mine and. Uh, Happened to uh, look at my phone and notice that uh, all of a sudden I had a, I think I had close to a thousand Twitter followers at the time. I was about 950 to a thousand Twitter followers, and I looked down. All of a sudden, hey, 1,500 Twitter followers. Hey, what did I do? What did I say? And uh, then I refreshed and I saw that I had 1,800 Twitter followers. I'd gained 300 in about two milliseconds. So what happened was, and this has happened to uh, people much more uh, prominent on Twitter than me. Uh, I got uh, I got follower bombed, bot bombed by somebody. You can purchase fake followers for yourself to make yourself look good, or you can purchase them for someone else. And somebody purchased them for me, and it did not stop until I reached about 60,000 followers. <laughs> so 
I have a great deal of fake ones, and I'm sure I still have some stragglers that are still there, but uh, I prefer to think of it as uh, the Twitter followers that I do have, whether I've got one real one or whether I've got 31,000 real ones or, or whether it's somewhere in between. Hopefully they're entertained because I just try and have as much fun on there as I possibly can. And uh, while still trying to maintain, you know, sense of decorum, and I try and keep it PG, PG-13 at, at, at the most because uh, I am trying to, you know, be professional. But at the same time, I'm just trying to have fun. I'm trying to tweet out pictures of dogs that I found funny or, or funny vines and, you know, stuff that I enjoy about sports and stuff that I enjoy about my job as well. Um, I don't know that i figured Twitter out, but I, I've, I've made it work for me, and uh, I have a lot of fun with it. But uh, I, I, I don't know who it was at the end of the day. I just know that uh, they got me pretty good. Uh, I, I, just, I could do nothing but watch the number of followers climb. And, uh, and, you know, once it was done, I thought, well, hey, I could really leverage this. I, couldn't, uh, I, can, I can seem way more popular than I really am. While I was at my first job in Denison, Iowa, I traveled... Uh, one of the longest trips that we would take to Creston, Iowa, was probably three, three and a half hours, which now, with some of the experience I've had, really isn't that long. But at the time, that seemed like a long way. I got to the gym, and I had been proud of myself because I had dug up some cool stories. One of them was that the school was using special jerseys to... F- special orange jerseys for multiple sclerosis awareness because they had a student who had multiple sclerosis and the school wanted to support this kid who was at the game and honor them, help them. There was a fundraiser, etc. Well, this became problematic when those special jerseys had numbers the size of about a half dollar on the front of the jersey, and they had the names on the back of the jersey, but this was a boys and girls doubleheader And with the girl's hair hanging down, you couldn't read the names on the back of the jersey. You couldn't see the numbers on the front of the jersey from where we were. I did not think to bring binoculars to a high school basketball game. So I ended up having to just say the numbers or the position of the player. Just say Creston moves the ball around to the right wing. They force it inside to a post player who scores a layup on the right side. Until I was able to catch enough glimpses of the back of their jerseys when their ponytails flipped up and after about oh probably 10 to 15 minutes of game time I was able to tell you mostly who the players were but that was definitely an interesting night in my career where things did not go as planned but as you always do you find a way to make do If you've seen the movie Fatal Attraction, you know some ladies just don't take rejection well. Zach McCright, a talk show personality in several markets throughout his career, and the host of another sports radio podcast, this one cleverly titled The Podcast About Sports Radio, he had to let a deranged female fan down easily. Here's his story. I guess the one, it's not necessarily has to do with where I was at. Um, but how uh, how it can be to I guess uh, for for someone to like you of the opposite sex. Um, I, I went to a remote and uh, it was a fun remote, and um, there were you know there were a lot of people in the audience and stuff. And, um, show ended and it was at a bar, so you know obviously you know you, you stay and you talk to 
people who were nice enough to come by the show. And there were drinks that were being handed out, obviously, all during the show and after. Um, of course, I didn't take, I didn't partake in many of them during, but, uh, you know, I had a couple after, you know, and um, you get to talking to people. And one of them is a girl who's fairly attractive. Um, I, at the time, had a very, uh, you know, had a long-term girlfriend, and uh, she is now my wife, but this other girl uh, who knew that I had a girlfriend, because I do talk about it on air, she decided to take a pass at me. And, uh, like, that was very, uh, you don't get to that very often when you're in sports radio. <laughs> uh, sports radio girl groupies. Gonna take... <laughs> yeah, I know. It kind of was. It was very odd. Um, so, yeah, she took a pass at me once, and uh, I, you know, politely declined, although she didn't see it that way because she had had, you know, 10 or 12 beers. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it was, uh, I, I, she probably drank me uh, cute because uh, I am not necessarily the, the, the most handsome fellow out there. But, uh, yeah, those are a couple of the stories that come to mind off the top of my head. Many times horror movies seem to be set in very, very rural locations and a lot of times seem to involve road trips. One of my personal stories involved a playoff football game when I was a student broadcaster still. I went to Morningside College in Sioux City, Iowa. This game was at Carroll College in Helena, Montana. We left Black Friday morning and we took the fan bus to Billings, Montana, which was about two and a half to three hours away from Helena, but it was a good portion of the the distance that we would eventually go. But we took the fan bus, as I believe I said before, and that fan bus was not going to leave in time the next morning for us to get set up and ready in time for kickoff of the game. So once we got to Billings, we had the bus drop us up at the airport where we were supposed to have a rental car from one of the companies at the Billings Airport in Montana. At the car rental area, there were people in every single little kiosk for every brand that we needed, and we won't go into which brand of car rental company this was, but there were people in everyone but the one we needed. He was just mysteriously gone. We were both only 21 or 22, so we could not go to the other ones and rent a car, and even if we could, we were poor college kids and probably could not afford it. We desperately tried to contact our mass comm professor but this was late at night probably one o'clock in the morning so we were stuck to just be stranded in the airport for probably about two hours before we were finally able to get somebody to wake up our professor call us and order us a different car from one of the competing kiosks uh, doing rental cars and as karma would have it as soon as we had just gotten that tied up the employee for the rental car company that we were supposed to get our rental car come walked in so we had waited for several hours for this man to show up and give us our rental car and he's like oh are you ready for it now and we said no we are not we are canceling we're taking this other one we drove three hours overnight we had almost no sleep before the playoff game in montana and when we got there we walked into this beautiful press box but as student broadcasters we were shown the ladder to the roof and on the roof it really wasn't a truly a roof it was more of a crow's nest it was enclosed but it was open to the air and it was very very cold outside 
and we had to broadcast in that condition with snow and wind and everything going on in eastern in northeastern montana so certainly that was a broadcast to remember Next up, Mark Boyle of the Indiana Pacers tells the story of one of the NBA's darkest days when he recalls what happened from his perspective during the malice in the palace in that famous Detroit Pistons versus Indiana Pacers game where Ron Artest ran into the stands and chaos ensued. And they had played in the conference finals the year previous. And it was fairly clear, even that early in the season, that they were the two best teams in the East again and probably would be seeing each other in the playoffs. So this was a game in November, and I think the Pacers at the time were 7-2 and two maybe. We were very early in the season, and it was in Detroit, and the first meeting of the year between the two since the conference finals, and the Pacers dominated. They ended up winning the game, I think, by 17 points. But at the end, and, it was a, and the Pacers and Pistons always played very physical, very intense games. So at the end of this game, there was less than a minute to go, and it had been a physical game, and the Pacers had dominated, and the Pistons were frustrated, and there was a hard foul committed by Ron Artest against Ben Wallace. So Ben took offense, and he shoved Ron, and the whole thing ended up over at the table where we were broadcasting. And the officials did an extremely poor job of sorting it out. They let it go on way too long, and most people know what happened. Uh, one of the uh, fans came down from... Uh, the upper reaches of the arena, and he had a cup of beer, and he threw it on Ronnie, and Ronnie went up in the stands, uh, and then everyone else has seen all of the, all of the video a million times by now. But where I got hurt there was when Ronnie went up. Uh, I tried to to stop him, I tried to grab him, and he went right over the top of me, and into the stands, and I landed on the on the floor, which was cement where we were. We were right on the floor there, which is cement floor, and I ended up fracturing five vertebrae. So the game was not canceled, but the game was ceased. We didn't play the final, whatever it was, 45 seconds. Uh, and there was some talk of our players being arrested. That never happened. It took us a while to get out of there because of the commotion and the circumstances. Uh, and it, it was a really weird, unusual situation. And, it, and, and you, you described it accurately. It was a dark day in NBA history because, obviously, no league wants to see it's players going up into the stands and mixing it up with paying customers. That's a, that's a horror story. And it ended up costing the Pacers because uh, they had a really good team, a team that was good enough to win a championship. Uh, and our test ended up being suspended for the season. Other guys were suspended for long chunks of time. They still won, I think, 44 or 45 games and still got back to the conference semifinals. That's how good they were. And they lost to Detroit in six games. So uh, it was a very unfortunate situation uh, for the league in general and specifically for the Pacers. Were you on the air the entire time? What did your call sound like? Well, like I told you before, I don't remember what it sounded like. I don't remember what I said. But we were on the air when Ronnie went up in the stands, and when he went over the top of me, we got knocked off the air. Uh, and so we, I guess you would say, plugged the equipment back in. I don't recall exactly what we did. We have an on-site engineer who does all that. But we got knocked off the air. Uh, and so it didn't take long to get us back on the air. So we got back on the air. Well, by the time we'd been on for not very long, a couple of minutes maybe, we could see that the situation was very tense. Already fans were out on the floor. And, and you, you felt, although I didn't feel that way at the time, in retrospect, I, I think it was foolish that I didn't, but I, you were in a danger zone. Uh, there were people with adrenaline and people throwing punches. And they, What we decided to do was was turn the broadcast over to the studio. 
Uh, and so our studio guy just called the rest of it off of the, of the monitor. The game was on ESPN. And so he was able to see what was going on, and he described it to our listeners. But we decided to unplug and get out of there uh, because there was the possibility of, of injury. And uh, I, I didn't know it at the time, but I'd already fractured five vertebrae. You know, I also had gotten my head cut open, uh, a superficial forehead wound, but those forehead wounds bleed quite a lot, so I had blood in my eyes. and It, it was a... Um, I should have been terrified, but I was right in the middle of it, and I, I just wasn't, uh, I guess because I didn't understand the gravity of it. But you could see that it had the potential for, uh, it, it already had been uh, very traumatic for those involved, and you could see that it had the potential to get even worse before uh, there were police on the floor and, and there were fans, uh, you know, coming after players, and it was, it was a very bad my story this time is actually going to be about the Save the Damn Score podcast with Mark Boyle because it was my very, very first one. I was really excited to get an NBA-level announcer as my first guest. He had very kindly agreed to come on and give up his time to be part of some Nobody in South Dakota's podcast. So I was impressed by that. And we had set up a time, and I had put several different reminders of when it was, and I had not forgotten. Everything seemed to be going perfect. I was making dinner early. I was actually making spaghetti in my apartment when all of a sudden my phone starts buzzing. It says, do you not need me anymore? And I'm looking at my phone. I'm like, I still have an hour to get this done. And then it dawned on me because you think of Indianapolis as the Midwest, but that is in the eastern time zone. I had completely spaced that Indianapolis was in a different time zone. So I was frantically texting him back, really worried that he was going to say, screw you, I was giving you my time and you're not even ready. Fortunately, he did not do that. I rushed to our studio and we recorded the first Say the Damn Score podcast and everything was happily ever after. I know that's not the theme in most of the stories here on the broadcast booth of horrors. But this time, it worked out. There was a happy ending, and we moved on. The next three stories feature the perfect storm, literally. Tony Castricone, the Clemson men's basketball play-by-play man. John Little, the voice of women's basketball for North Texas University. And Dave Gorin, the executive director of the National Sports Media Association and sideline announcer for Wake Forest, tell their stories of fighting the elements. First, Tony Castricone battles heavy rain and wild animals. One was, I was driving way up, and this is when I was doing Galax High School uh, for WWWJ in Southwest Virginia, and they had a road game that was like two hours away, and so I drive up to this place (laughs) way up in the mountains, and they didn't have any room in the press box, so they put us on the roof of the press box, and as we're on the roof of the press box, it starts just sleeting and hailing on us. I mean, <laughs> freezing cold, 32 and a half degrees downpour, you know? And I'm trying to keep the equipment dry. I'm trying to keep myself from getting sick, but it's just absolutely miserable. Well, the team I was covering was really good, and they ended up making it pretty far in the state playoffs, but the team they were playing that night was pretty terrible. So within the first quarter, it's like 35 to nothing. Early in the second quarter, that team's uh, scoreboard goes out. And so for the last two and a half quarters of the game, I'm guessing the time. I'm guessing the down and distance. 
I'm miserably cold and freezing cold and wet, and my rosters are just like blotches of ink on <laughs> soaking wet paper, and it's a complete disaster. Like I, I'm just, I'm just laughing to myself, thinking, you know what, this is going to be a story for someday, and all I got to do is get through this. Just, just get through this, and and try not to catch pneumonia, and try to keep the equipment from breaking. You know, I mean, those are your objectives at that point. One of the objectives that I should have told myself was try not to get in a car accident on the way home because <laughs> as I was driving home down these windy mountains, I hit a deer. <laughs> Actually, the deer hit me. It ran out from the woods and T-boned the side of my car and put a dent in the side of my car. So uh, that's about as, as good of a horror story as it gets. John Little, the voice of the North Texas Mean Green women's basketball team, tries not to decompose as he waits out the weather delays in Oklahoma. Yeah, the first one that I kind of go to is I've been keeping up the Southwestern season this year, and they've already had two pretty significant weather delays where I thought they were going to have to play their Saturday game on Sunday. Uh, we actually had to do that a few years ago at Texas A&M Commerce. I think this was like 2010. And, uh, yeah, this game started, and almost immediately it went under weather delay. Um, they couldn't ever start it back, and finally, after this deluge in October, uh, they had to call the game and decide to play it the next day. Well, we got it going again. Uh, you know, restarted it very early on in the game. Got through to the fourth quarter, Southwestern's leading, and here come the sirens once more and here come uh, here comes the deluge again and we get another two and a half three hours of weather delay and the game is nearly decided uh, Swasu's up by like two touchdowns or something like that and the athletic director at A&M Commerce would not call the game the southwestern people are just absolutely um you know just begging him to call this game and say yeah we give the win to southwestern we can't keep them here any longer. They've already been here through Saturday. They probably came in Friday night, um, spent the night again on Saturday. Uh, it's already, we're playing this game on Sunday, and it's getting later and later and later, and these kids have to go to class the next day, and they've been here all weekend. And uh, the athletic director wouldn't call it, wouldn't call it, wouldn't call it. Finally, the skies kind of opened up and we were able to get back underway and Southwestern ends up winning that game. But uh, that's certainly a memorable one, weather-related, the, the most memorable weather delay that we ever went through. Dave Gorin, the executive director of the National Sports Media Association, tries to avoid melting like the Wicked Witch in a primal downpour in Annapolis, Maryland. Wake Forest is playing a game at Navy, at Navy Marine Corps Stadium in Annapolis, Maryland. Now, I will tell you, if you've never been to a game at one of the service academies, that should be right at the top of your bucket list because because there's nothing like standing on the field when either the midshipmen or the cadets march in. And if the hair on all the hair on your body doesn't stand up, there's probably something wrong with you. Um, it, it's just... It's a very emotional experience. Well, anyway, this game at Navy, suffice to say, I have been drier standing in the ocean than I was that day. 
it was like a mini hurricane descended over Annapolis. Uh, I was, it was raining so hard. I had actually a really good rain slicker top on <clears throat> and I tried to bury my microphone under the coat so it wouldn't get wet. It was okay if I got wet, but the, we didn't want the equipment to get wet. The only problem was instead of a full rain suit, I had regular pants on. So all of the water just cascaded down my legs into my shoes. My shoes were waterproof. Now, the only problem with that is it's also waterproof going out. So all the water that ponded in my shoes couldn't get out. <laughs> now, for those of you who don't know, we travel with the team. So we travel on the team charter and we bus back and forth to the airport. The only difference between us and the players is we're doing the post-game show while they are showering and changing. We don't get to change. And I can't tell you how fortunate we were that it was a an unseasonably warm late October day because otherwise chafing would have taken on a whole new meaning for me. <laughs> That's the, the, I don't I don't think I could be any wetter than I was that day. But <laughs> you know, such such is the life of a sideline reporter you're out in the elements. We all have inconvenient weather stories you're not you haven't been in sportscasting very long covering either football soccer anything that's played outside baseball for that matter if you don't have a bad weather story you just haven't been in the business long enough you're going to have it mine involves being in Tabor, iowa for eight-man football playoff game this was late october or early november it was unseasonably cold it was single digits and it had just an absolute bitterly cold wind chill where I believe it was 40 mile per hour wind gusts. There was no throwing the ball, so the game was mercifully quick. And when I got there, they actually had a heater in the press box. The windows were closed. We had all just agreed we're not going to open them and we'll deal with the sound not being quite as good as it might be so we don't get completely frozen. Unfortunately, not going along with our plans was the lady running the camera standing a foot outside of the booth and where she had to be freezing cold still, but she was keeping the door open of the press box. So she had to be cold and apparently we all had to be cold too because in this bitterly, bitterly cold Iowa late October, November football game, the wind was blowing right into the stadium. Our papers were flying all over the place, and we were bundled up in about six different layers of winter clothing. Eventually, we got done, and thank God my heater worked in the car ride back home. It was a long way to go, but we made it once again. In the movie 28 Days, a foreign substance nearly ends humanity. Birch Antley, who covers high school football in Columbia, South Carolina, found a dangerous foreign substance in one of his booths. He'll tell the story next. The biggest horror story, I would have to say, Logan, is uh, doing a high school game one time in Swansea, South Carolina. We were in the press box. A lady comes in, looks in our booth, walks in, changes her baby's diaper while we were calling put play in the fourth, third quarter, and leaves the diaper in the booth. <laughs> and by the time... The fourth quarter came around. It was getting pretty, pretty ripe. Uh, so that was uh, that's probably one of the worst broadcast moments of my career. <laughs>
covering presentation football was unique for me because they started a program from scratch. For the five years that I was the broadcaster for presentation, I was the best broadcaster in the history of presentation college football because I was the only one. So I was able to watch the team come from a team full of almost all freshmen to a pretty darn good fully developed team by the time I moved on to my next opportunity. That year they won three games and one of those wins was particularly memorable because they had to overcome a ton of adversity on one of the worst fields that I've ever seen and this adversity starts on the bus ride where we initially took one charter bus because the team was small enough at that time and we also took a people mover which most of you probably know what it is but if you don't it's basically like a short bus or a half bus you can call it what you want but with that people mover it had a hitch on the back we always had to bring a trailer because there wasn't enough room underneath one charter bus for all the equipment so we would hitch this trailer onto the people mover and roll with it well one time the hitch was not on all the way and as we were on the interstate going 70 miles per hour or something similar to that i guess i was not driving so i don't know exactly how fast it was go but the trailer jumped off the hitch and ended up looking much worse than it probably really was because there were sparks were flying all over the place on the road behind us it looked like it was wobbling back and forth we were really fortunate that it never tipped over and the chain that the backup chain that you put anytime you hitch a trailer did hold up so that was not an issue everyone was safe but we did have to pull over and we had to put a trailer back onto a hitch in the middle of an interstate somewhere between South Dakota and Jacksonville, Illinois. Once we got to that game, it was a bad field, as I said before. I broadcast the game from a ground-level press box, and my table was stacked up Coke flats. So, of course, you make do with what you have. The phone line worked. I was thankful for that. But then when we needed to leave, the people mover wouldn't start. So we had to wait for one of the players who happened to be kind of a gearhead from Alaska. And he came, borrowed somebody's tools who was part of the school or just a fan who happened to be in the stands. And he was able to get inside this people mover, make some adjustments and fix it to the point where we were able to make it home. So that was certainly an interesting story in my first year as a college football announcer. Now we will go to Mike Grimm's story, who is the football and basketball play-by-play man for the University of Minnesota. He will recount his haunting tale of broadcasting terror inside a rural Iowa bus barn. And in northeast Iowa, there was a there was a high school called Turkey Valley, and they they were they made the playoffs. They were near Decorah. Decorah also made the playoffs, so the, so they had an AM and an FM station. And the AM station always carried the Decorah games. Well, now here's a chance to do some regional stuff. And I think they sold like $800 worth of commercials for this Turkey Valley playoff game. Uh, on a, I want to say, I can't. I think it was a Wednesday. I think the opening round of the playoffs are on Wednesday. At least they were at that time. And, um, you know, that's a, that's a pretty good chunk of change for small-town radio. Uh, back in 19, this had to be 1991-ish. So we were going to do, this is some inside shop, the broadcasters listening, most will know what I'm talking about, the general folks listening won't have an idea, but we, we had what you call a Marty, uh, <laughs> and the Marty oh, was God. just a way to, you know, just a way to transfer your voice, almost like a CD radio, for lack of a better term, back to the station as opposed to a phone line. They didn't want to put in a phone line, this cost of installation, but it turned out we were, we were out of Marty range, 
the only the only thing picking up the Marty was the PA system. <laughs> it was bleeding through. So the station owner was was kind of along just to do some engineering because I really didn't know what the Marty was about. It turns out now the station owner's thinking, I might just lose eight or nine hundred dollars here. We gotta figure this out. There's a bus barn down the way, probably a hundred yards to the south of the south end zone. This is the night game. The scoreboard faces the other way, and he says, you want to just uh, do the play-by-play from here because there was a phone in the back corner of the of the uh, bus barn. And I really didn't want to. I had told a bunch of my friends that, uh, hey, you should listen. I'm, I'm making my – done student work up to that point, you know, on the student station. This is my commercial radio debut, play-by-play. I told a bunch of friends to listen. And he said, you know what, I'll just do it. And um, what I'll have you do is you run up to the scoreboard, jot a few notes down, and then run back and hold up the notepad. So I'm not kidding you. The station owner is on the phone in the back of a bus barn. He's looking through the motor of a John Deere tractor. They wouldn't let us open the door, the garage door, so he's looking through a circular window that was maybe two feet wide in diameter. And it's 100 yards to the very south of the place. So he had no idea. None. It was the worst game ever broadcast in the history of high school football. <laughs> And I'm sure over the years there's been some bad ones. And so we finally get done. It's, it's, a, it's a terrible broadcast. He, and he signs off, hangs up the phone, and I'm thinking he's going to say, oh, my God, what a nightmare. He turns and he gives me high five like, we did it. And I'm like, oh, he, he's happy he got the money. That's what he's happy about. And um, it was unreal. I got back, and this was back in the days of real phones, you know, landline phones in my the, the message light was flashing, and I had like four or five people going, man, you were terrible. What's going on? They're thinking it was me. And uh, that, so that, without a doubt, is the most bizarre uh, football broadcast I've ever been part of. But uh, God bless the station owner. He uh, he got the money. He made his little dough, and um, and the game could win on the air. And I my main regret is I don't have a tape of it. I would love to go back and listen to it. <laughs> Another long road trip story. I wrote about it on my blog once, so I'll do the very, very Cliff Notes version of this one. But the very first time that we had the presentation college bus, they bought their own bus for the team to use. And the very first time we took this was for a basketball game in Manhattan, Kansas, which was our longest trip of the year. It was probably an 8 to 10 hour drive without looking it up. Anyway, the priest of presentation came in because he was a. This was a Catholic school. He blessed the bus, and apparently the blessing did not work because it broke down multiple times. It stalled out at every stoplight in Lincoln, Nebraska, and it even got to the point where we had to. It wouldn't unlock from the inside. We had to signal somebody through the tiny smoking window for the driver to come and hit a button on the outside of the bus that would open the door so we were all stuck on a bus for about 15 minutes trying to get into the bath get into a gas station and go to the bathroom and we eventually made it to manhattan we stayed the night and then we went to the gym to play manhattan christian it was just a municipal city gym and in this gym the heat in the middle of january 
was stuck on full blast. So we got in, it was literally 85 to 90 degrees in this gym. And I was sweating through my clothes by the time my broadcast was over. I felt horrible for the players who had to somehow find a way to play basketball in that condition. But it was just brutally, brutally, oppressively hot. The one thing I'll always remember about that particular environment was that they had the doors open in the gym with fans blowing the outside air in in the middle of january you probably never see that again the doors had signs on them that said keep closed at all times to keep bats out no bats flew in but both of the teams lost that night one of them was on a last second no call if you ask my humble opinion which you're not but i'm telling you anyway but it was Two losses for Presentation College in the hottest gym I have ever been in. It was a very unique situation, and that's my story. Now on to our next story. There are many horrible potions brewed by covens of witches around the world. John Thayer, the women's basketball voice of the University of South Dakota, talks about receiving a mysterious moonshine bottle from a deranged fan. Uh, we were given moonshine at a uh, um, at, at one of the schools we visited um, in the eastern part of the uh, country, and that moonshine kind of just just was with us, you know, for uh, quite a while. I don't know. We had it for a few weeks, and um, we ended up finally opening it um, the night before a game in Marshall, Missouri, where Missouri Valley. Uh, college is located and they've always been a very good football program pretty consistent uh, ranked in the top 25 and I can't remember who they were playing um, but we opened that up the night before is apple pie moonshine uh, first time I've had that uh, and it was good last time yeah definitely I uh, but it was good and uh, we ended up going into you know a bar that night and um, yeah I don't think you realize how much that stuff hits you until uh Sometimes the next day. But it was good. We'll, we'll say that. I think most of us would be lying if we had said that we have never gone out for a couple beers on the road before a game. Of course, you should be responsible. You shouldn't have very many. You want to feel good for your broadcast the next day. And that is what I practice now. But early in my career again, I believe four years in, Back when I was still young enough and the hangovers didn't hurt quite as much, I did a Legion baseball game in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and was hanging out with the broadcaster of the opposing team, and we went out for a couple of beers, and I really don't remember having very much, and one of my other friends was there. I asked him, did I have that many? And he said, no, no, you didn't, but for whatever reason... After having those beers, the next morning we had a game because they were playing on back-to-back days in Sioux Falls, and it was at 1 o'clock, and it took me until 12 o'clock to even be able to move off the couch. It was a horrible, horrible hangover, and somehow, some way, I was able to get up and go to this press box, which was basically just a tin shack, and put together a somewhat decent broadcast. I don't know if it was good, but I at least got through it and got the game on the air but i had never felt so bad during a broadcast and i will never feel that bad again now i'm much more careful in what i consume both food alcohol caffeine wise everything i have pretty stringent rules and what i allow myself to put in my body before a game and that all started on that fateful trip to sioux falls 
In our next harrowing story, Neil Rule, who calls men's basketball for Oakland University in Michigan, talks about the conspiracy of a referee crew who ejected a broadcaster and how Neil was able to fill in on a moment's notice. Uh, well, I, I know Matt a little bit. Obviously, when you work in the same league, your, your paths cross twice a year. Uh, once when we go there, once when they come here. So, you know, you get to know the guys a little bit. You always chat with them and see how things are going with their team. So I, I knew Matt a little bit, and I, I know Matt, he's a hands talker. He, he's one of those guys that talks with his hands, which you can get away with on radio, uh, obviously. But he's a guy that talks with his hands a lot. So he had the unfortunate scenario of his broadcast spot was directly behind the officials uh, and the, the scorekeeper. So when the official would come over to give the foul number, there was a, a 50-50 foul that could have went either way. It went against Green Bay. So Matt was describing the action, and he had his hands kind of extended about shoulder height, and they were spread apart. And the official went to report the foul and saw Matt over the shoulder of the scorekeeper and stopped the game immediately and said, you know, who is this guy? Where's the game manager? Who is this guy? I want this guy out of here. Stop the game. He completely stopped the game, and, and it was unfortunate for Valpo because they had a little bit of momentum going. And Bryce Drew actually asked Pat Adams, the official, said, hey, you know, can we get the game going again? And he stopped the game and said he wanted them out of there, and they started to pick play back up again. During the run of play, security had come over to remove Matt from, <laughs> from the broadcast location, and I was prepping for our game. We played after them. Uh, Oakland was playing against Wright State, so I was just kind of hanging out. I had all my radio equipment set up. We were ready to rock, and I saw them removing Matt, and they were in, actually in a commercial break at the time. So I said, "Matt, do you want me to jump over and, and call the game?" And it's not a big deal, it, you know, being in the Horizon League. I've, I've called two games apiece uh, for both teams, so I just grabbed the roster that I had handy, uh, sitting there on the table, jumped over and put the headset on while they were escorting Matt to the uh, back or wherever they ended up taking him. I put the headset on, and the producers counting back. He said, we're back in five seconds, and said, okay, here we go. And uh, just said who I was, said that I was filling in. I said the damn score and uh, moved on. One of the more inconvenient broadcast locations I've ever had to deal with was just outside of Bemidji, Minnesota, at a little school called Oak Hills Christian, and... They have wonderful people there. They're a small Bible school in Minnesota, but they're not used to having broadcasters. They're in a very small league. They're below NCAA D3 and NAIA. They just have their own league with other Bible schools, and they get very little media coverage. So when I asked to come, they said, oh, yeah, we have a room with a window overlooking the gym, and you will be just fine up there. And I said, okay, there's a phone line. Life will be good. I've been in worse places. When I get there, I look through that window and I look for the scoreboard and I can't find it. And I'm thinking in my head, either the scoreboard is on the other side of this wall of the window that I'm looking through in a spot where I can't see it or they don't have one. So I walked down, looked up, and of course that scoreboard was on the same wall. They said there was no other place in this tiny gym that they would allow me to broadcast. So I had to do it from that room. And I just had to keep score by hand and just guess at what the time is. I had, during timeouts, I had one of the graduate assistants for the team run up notes with what the time was so I could give an approximate estimation. But that was the best I could do. And we played two games in a row there, so it was an issue for two consecutive nights. 
But again, that just made me better. It helped me to learn to keep a running score on paper by myself. And you know what? I got paid the same. So that's really all that matters to it. Those listeners don't care about your adversity. But it's a fun story to tell after the fact. Living the life of Jason Bourne seems exciting until you actually think about the things that he does. John Nicholson, the renowned academic and director of sports media at the Newhouse School at Syracuse University, retells the story where he tried to basically be Jason Bourne for a day and strapped himself to a plane and went flying with it. He'll tell that story now. I went, as I said before, the the first thing I did was go to Oshkosh. And the first year in Oshkosh, this is the the largest gathering of people who love airplanes in the world, as far as I know. You get as many as as three-quarters of a million people in this little town in Wisconsin, uh, at, at a, what used to be a private airport. They, well, it is a private airport now. Uh, and they come there and they, they bring the planes that they have built. It's really a started as a home builder's convention. But then you get these military planes and you get the Blue Angels sometimes or the Snowbirds from Canada, all these remarkable things, anything in aviation that you can imagine. I met movie stars there. I, I met um, astronauts there and some of the greatest flyers in the world, many of whom became my friends because I was there for a lot of years. And the big deal was one year I was out also, I was covering, I covered the Reno Air Races at the time, and then one year or two years we had the uh, Phoenix Air Races. So I ran into a friend of mine named Gene Soucy, everybody calls him Gino, and he has what is a, a biplane called uh, a Showcat. I guess actually an Agricat, but he calls it a Showcat, of course. And his longtime friend and companion, Teresa, would walk on the wing. So we're out there in Phoenix, and uh, I noticed that there was some guy going up on Gino's wing to take a flight. I said, who's that? He said, that's a guy from a local TV station. I said, well, Gino, you never asked me if I could go on the wing. He said, well, you want to? What am I going to say now? Yeah, sure. So the next summer in Oshkosh, I climbed up on top of Gino's wing, and they strapped me in. I did not walk. I just stood. <laughs> and we took off and flew around the field a few times and dove. And um, I pretended I was actually I was trying to talk, but the wind was blowing so hard that uh, <laughs> you couldn't hear me anyway, even though I was mic'd up. The best advice I got from Teresa was keep your mouth closed. <laughs> Most of the time, don't smile. I said, yeah. She says, yeah, you don't want a mouthful of bugs. That's what you get up there. It's not all that romantic. So I have all these pictures of me and this experience of flying around on top of the wing of a biplane. And people say, did you do that? And I said, yeah. Were you scared? Mm, no, now that I think about it, why not? And I said, because Gino's got a million bucks on that airplane. I don't think he's going to crash it just to kill me. <laughs> and he didn't. He was great. I think that's probably the most fun and uh, exciting experience that I had in all those years covering strange things. One of the dumbest moments of my career happened when I was doing a pigskin pick'em show in Denison, Iowa. That was where I got my first job. And we were sponsored by Hy-Vee Stores, which is a big grocery store chain in the Midwest. If you're not from the Midwest, Google it, you'll figure it out. There's basically some sort of equivalent of Hy-Vee in every single market. Just a big grocery store that is that prides itself in the way that it serves the community. So they sponsored our show, and it was live at a sports bar. They would send one of their managers, and he would take part in this pick'em competition. 
Well, somebody made a comment because this is when Kurt Warner was tearing things up, I believe, with the Arizona Cardinals. And the High V manager said, talked about how they were proud that Kurt Warner had a history. He had worked bagging groceries uh, before he made it in the NFL. That's been well documented over the years. And they were talking about how impressed and how proud they were to have had him as a former employee. Well, in my infinite wisdom, there was another grocery store in town. We won't name them because I don't want to bash anybody. But they were also a station sponsor. They weren't a sponsor of this show, but they did advertise with our station. Well, when we started talking about a team with a bad quarterback, I mentioned that you guys are proud that Kurt Warner was a former High V employee. But this team is more like, if this guy represented a grocery store, it would be more like Brand X. My sports director looked at me like, what are you doing? You just destroyed one of our, one of our advertisers on the air. I had to go in and apologize to said Brand X grocery store. And I didn't, and it was not a hard apology to make because I really did feel sorry. It was a dumb thing to say. You, of course, appreciate all of your advertisers. But on live radio, sometimes you th say things you can't take back, and that was definitely one of those cases. In the movie Alien, hostile extraterrestrials invaded the bodies of space-age travelers and ravaged their victims from the inside out while exiting their hosts. Randy Grossman of KDSN Radio in Denison, Iowa, recalls the time when something desperately needed to escape his body during a 16-inning baseball game. It's also noteworthy to say that he was the person who gave me, who, who, who co-hosted that last pigskin pick'em show that we talked about, and he was the one who gave me the throat-slashing signal to make sure that I stopped my comment before I said anything worse. Uh, another thing that's uh, kind of a funny thing, I was uh, doing a baseball game in Denison. It was supposed to be JV varsity, but because of some impending weather, the AD called me up and said, hey, we're going to start the varsity game in about a half an hour. So I hadn't even showered yet, but uh, I quickly showered, jumped in, got the equipment set up, and broadcast the game. Unfortunately, I did not go to the bathroom before this happened. Now, this is a baseball game. Got to be about the 12th inning, and Radio Ran really had to go to the bathroom very, uh, real bad. I waited till the 16th inning. It was the bottom of the 16th inning, and I finally, and there were no bathrooms close by in Denison. You had to walk about oh, a quarter of a mile. Finally, the bottom of, between the middle of the 16th and bottom of the 16th, one of my friends, Dr. Steve Oldman, I just yelled at him. I said, if we don't score, you got the 17th inning. Well, wouldn't you know, we hit a leadoff home run on the bottom of the 16th and win the game, and it was the shortest post-game I've ever had in the history of sports because uh, I had to uh, go to the restroom really bad. <laughs> in one of my first road trips with the basketball team at Presentation College, we went to a town called Jamestown, North Dakota. It wasn't a super long trip. It was about an hour and a half away, but they exited from a different door than what they had originally came in. And they had not told me that because they were not used to having a radio broadcaster and there was just a glitch in the communication. So with this happening, we mentioned they weren't used to having a radio broadcaster yet. The game was over. I was tearing down. I went outside to the door that we came in from and for whatever reason, the bus wasn't there. And I waited there for about 20 minutes. 
And then eventually I figured they would come around or come looking for me or that maybe the bus was waiting for something else. Who knows what it could have been. But eventually I got a call through to one of the coaches and they had actually left without me. So they had gone probably 20 to 30 minutes down the road. So I went back in and waited, but I had just gotten left at an opposing gym. And when you ride the bus, there's no other way to get back from Jamestown, North Dakota to Aberdeen, South Dakota. The head coach, he's going to be a groomsman in my wedding next summer. But at this time, I was not particularly happy with him. Our last story of the day, when something evil is around, sometimes the only thing to do is hide. But what happens if they find you? Mike Henriksen from Calling All Sports and Sportsmax in South Dakota tells his story of how he survived just that situation. I'm in Gregory, South Dakota. I am broadcasting a game from Geddes, South Dakota. Geddes doesn't even have a school anymore, but that year... Geddes is good. And I end up, I'm broadcasting a game in Geddes, South Dakota. Population maybe 300 at that time. I get to the uh, football field. And first of all, I had forgotten to call the superintendent to ask permission. He had helped install the phone line, but I had not let him know that I was coming. That was a very, very valuable lesson because he came over and chewed me from here to Tuesday. Now his, he and I are great friends, Rich Rockefeller, uh, people in South Dakota that are involved in baseball know the Rock. He has been a baseball umpire and track official and administrator for a lot of years. But he says, I'm really sorry, Mike, we don't have you know a broadcast booth for you. He takes me, this is the first time that Geddes has ever been on the radio. He takes me to what used to be the baseball concession stand. I am standing on top of the baseball concession stand. Geddes has no time clock and no scoreboard. And this is their first radio broadcast. The good news is this is about 1982, so it's the advent of Walkman. Almost everyone in the stand has Walkman on. I can't see the field from the 20-yard line in on the one side because I'm so far away from the field and everyone is standing. So I'm guessing, Logan, I'm just guessing. Sweep left, ball down at the 8-yard line. The crowd would turn around and go, it's at the six. It was hilarious. But, but this game is also taking forever. And again, there's no score clock because Geddes is just absolutely rolling in this game, so it's taking forever. So I end up, it's the, about the fourth quarter near as I can tell because they've, they've switched sides again. Suddenly, there are several drunks that have discovered where I'm broadcasting from. And I'm just standing on top of this concession stand with a princess phone. And again, for younger people, go back and Google this. I'm standing up there, and suddenly there are some drunks that discover where I am broadcasting from. And they decide to join me on top of this concession stand. And they are swigging whiskey. They got the bottle right there with them. 
They are doing things off the back of the concession stand that I'll just leave to the imagination <laughs> here. And another one leans in, puts his arm around, oh, drinking whiskey, Mom! You listening? <laughs> that was probably the worst. This has been the Say the Damn Score podcast, the little broadcast booth of horrors. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll get back to our normal format next time. But wanted to mix things up and do things a little different. Have a happy Halloween and make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher. You can get email updates on SayTheDamnScore.com by clicking on the top right part of the page where it says subscribe. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter by following me on Twitter. That's Radio underscore Logan. And you can follow me on Facebook at Facebook.com slash score. Please give the podcast a rating on iTunes. And remember, next time you're on the air to say the damn score.